It's my great pleasure to welcome you here tonight to the seventh in the college's series of Haldane lectures, a distinguished series established in memory of two remarkable scientists, the Scottish physiologist and inventor John Scott Haldane and his son, the geneticist J.B.S. Haldane, whose house once stood on the site of this college and whose memory is enshrined in the Haldane room next door. Since I became president of Wolfson, the Haldane lecture has been given by the neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran, the Nobel Prize-winning developmental biologist, Sir Martin Evans, and the computer scientist, Sir Tony Hoare. So Ian Chalmers is every bit as eminent and important a figure, and we're delighted and honored to have him here tonight. When he received the Winslow Award from the Yale School of Public Health in 2010, an award only given to the most outstanding contributions in the field of public health, he was described as the single most influential person in developing and promoting the use of evidence-based strategies in public health and medicine. He has also, perhaps less decorously, been described as the maverick master of medical evidence. He has spent his working life trying to make sure that health professionals and patients have free access to unbiased evidence of the effects of medical and other treatments. In his practice as a young physician in the 1960s and 70s, both in the UK and working for the UN in a Palestinian refugee camp in the Gaza Strip, he first encountered the tragic consequences of medical opinions unsubstantiated by empirical evidence. This led on to work as a health services researcher, particularly concerned with assessing the effects of healthcare and with systematizing the evidence of clinical trials. From 1978 to 1992, he was the founding director of the National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit, the leading research center in Europe for studying infants and pregnant women. In 1992, he set up the Cochrane Collaboration, a nonprofit international organization that produces systematic reviews of the effect of healthcare interventions. The Cochrane Collaboration has had a huge influence on public health policy and programs worldwide. In 2003, he set up the James Lind Library, a remarkable online historical record of treatment trials, and founded the James Lind Initiative, which brings doctors and patients together to, to identify unanswered questions about medical treatments. He's also involved with DUETS, short for the Database of Uncertainties about the Effects of Treatments, publishing patient queries, for instance, on the long-term effects of treatments for asthma. He is the author of Effective Care in Pregnancy and Childbirth, Testing Treatments, Better Research for Healthcare, and very many other publications. So Ian's portrait in the National Portrait Gallery has him surrounded by 150 headshots on walls, floor, and ceiling of many of the colleagues he has collaborated with during his life. In the portrait, he is standing on a stool, pinning another picture to the ceiling, it's the opposite of a grand or stuffy or isolated image. And it shows us a person whose life's work is built on collaborations, on relationships with others. One of the warmest of those relationships, incidentally, was with one of my distinguished predecessors in this job, Sir David Smith, and with his wife, Leslie. So it's particularly gratifying for us that Sir Ian is here at Wolfson to speak on trying to do more good than harm in healthcare. Please make him very welcome. Thank you very much, President. Um, 
you've actually given an abstract of my talk, and so if people want to leave now, then it, <laughs> um, please feel free. Um, the names that you read out um, will make, I hope, everyone understand why I feel so daunted by this invitation. Um, and I was actually puzzled. Why, why did they want a troublemaker like me to come and give a talk here? And after a little bit of probing earlier on today, I didn't get it through correspondence. I've discovered that it's Mina Fazel who is to blame for this largely. And so uh, I hope that, she, in fact, I've told her she's got to share the blame for what's about to come. Um, there's, this college has very, very important associations for me and the people who worked in the National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit because we had two external reviews here uh, during the 1980s, one of which, uh, which I'll mention in more detail uh, later on, was um, really quite influential in what happened then uh, during the 90s. And as you see, um, Sir Isaac Wilson has made many gifts to medical, to, to medical research, and certainly the uh, gift that he gave to that unit was, if you like, communicated by these two people, Ellen Rice, the domestic bursar, and Graham Payne, the steward. They made us feel incredibly at home in this place. And, you know, when you're being externally reviewed, um, bit nervous. I mean, we, we tried to prepare for it, but it made such a difference to have such nice people helping us to feel relaxed and not having to worry about um, the sort of things which, um, in a less caring place, one would have had to worry about. Um, this is quite an old picture, as you can see. Some of you may recognize um, some of the people in it. The person on her knees uh, right at the front uh, has recently been ordained as a um, Church of England priest in Oxford, um, Joe Garcia. Um, Anne Oakley is there. There are a number of people who some people in the audience will recognize. And that was taken at the beginning of the 80s as this um, little research group was getting going. Um, so we, we owe a lot to, to Wolfson. But what about the, the Haldane side of things? The sort of research that we were involved in really wasn't the sort of thing that uh, John Scott Haldane did. I've put a picture of his brother up there because I'll come back to him in a moment. JBS Haldane um, also was someone who was involved in research of a very different kind from the research that we were doing uh, in the late 70s and 80s in the National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit. One of uh, John Haldane's other children was Naomi. Haldane, uh, who became Naomi Mitchison. Uh, she married a Labour MP. And I do start to have a little bit of contact with this family at that point, because on, I think, maybe the only occasion that I've travelled in a first-class railway carriage, uh, it was being shared with um, Naomi, my uncle and my father, myself, and my grandmother's ashes, we were on the way to Inverness to return her ashes to be nearby to her um, uh, husband. And Naomi was on her way to uh, Carradale in Argyll, where the family had a house. 
Now, she had, um, she and her husband had um, children, one of whom is Dennis Mitchison. Now, I do know him. Uh, he's a pathologist. He's still very much alive. And he's famous, and his, his work comes a little closer to the work that, sort of work that I did, because he was one of the people who contributed to what became a very iconic controlled trial, looking at the impact of giving streptomycin to people with um, pulmonary tuberculosis. It was published in 1948, and 50 years after the publication, it was celebrated in a special issue of the BMJ. And in fact, Rory Collins, um, Sir Rory, was one of the contributors to that issue, I'm fairly certain. But I want to come back to this guy, whom I knew nothing about and, at all until I started wondering how I was going to introduce this lecture. He was a very interesting person. And there is the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers, still extant, and indeed, um, quite shortly, as you see, they're going to have a... A meeting on defending human rights defenders with people from uh, Colombia and Palestine and all sorts of other places. But you'll see there that uh, it was named after him, who as a liberal had been Asquith's Lord Chancellor, um, but he was hounded out of office by the then, as ever, xenophobic Daily Mail. But he became the first Lord Chancellor of the first Labour government. Um, now, one of the things that the Haldane Society and Lawyers for Palestinian Human Rights are doing at the moment is that they're looking into um, problems relating to housing rights in a part of East Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah. Here's where Sheikh Jarrah is. It's the bit in the square. The, the old city is the bit just below it. And it's a bit of a nuisance, really, because it's uh, full of Palestinians. And as you see, it stands between the old city and these um, settlements um, beyond the, the Green Line. And what's, in essence, going on there at the moment is ethnic cleansing. And that's not the first time that uh, this part of the world has seen ethnic cleansing. This book, written by the Israeli historian Ilan Pape, using... Uh, records, Haganah records and Irgun records uh, is a very important description of what happened between those years. And indeed, this shows um, what has happened to the territory of Palestine in terms of uh, the gradual erosion of any land left to the Palestinians themselves. Why am I telling you about this. You, you know already from what the President has said that uh, I worked in Gaza. But I have a continuing interest in this. I first went to Palestine in 1963, a long time ago. That's when I first visited uh, um, East Jerusalem. And as I went around, I read this book, and it opened my eyes and made me feel actually very ashamed of this country, Britain. And some of you will know why, but basically, with our imperial power uh, back during the First World War, we promised something which wasn't ours, uh, a land, to two different national movements. And it was bound, 
absolutely bound to leave, lead to the ghastliness which we see in that part of the world now. So I decided, rather pathetically as a gesture, to see if I could go and work uh, in Palestine uh, as a doctor. And I applied to work for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine, Palestinian re refugees. And it, it's because that was such an incredibly important experience in everything that I've done subsequently that I felt it right to introduce you to that. There's the Gaza Strip. Almost everyone knows where it is these days. Um, and you'll see on the map on the right there, um, Khan Yunis, which is where I worked, and Jabalia, nearer to Gaza City, where my wife Jan, who's in the audience, uh, worked. She worked in, they had about, uh, I think our camp was slightly bigger. It had 45,000 people in it. Um, Jan's had about 40,000 in Jabalia. And um, when we were there, less than half a million people lived in this tiny area. Now it's more than one and a half million. It's a slum. It's a prison. It's the most ghastly place. I mean, we've been back quite recently and can confirm that from first-hand experience. So what am I going to talk about in this talk? Well, this is the outline of the talk that I'm planning to offer to you. I'm going to talk about what I learned in Gaza about healthcare. How what I learned subsequently influenced my work. What I've learned from researching research, looking at what medical research is being done. And then to change gear slightly, I'm going to raise at the end something I think that um, uh, Mina would uh, approve of is to, to what extent do professionals, health professionals, have special responsibilities? In other words, over and above their citizenship um, to respond to threats to health socially and politically as well as technically. And I'll tell you in advance that I don't have a confident answer to that question. So let's start about what I learned in Gaza about healthcare. Well, this is an advertisement for a 1969 fundraising campaign for the United Nations Association Trust. And it was launched, I, I was paid 20 quid to um, model for this uh, advertisement. Um, and it was just uh, before, uh, the, the pictures were taken, just before I went to um, uh, Gaza. The, uh, in fact, I think it's a good thing that they were up on hoardings uh, after I'd left. I was out of the country by the time I was being displayed. But as you see, there's a, a, a legend there which says, this do-gooder needs your help. And I'm a do-gooder because I've got a white coat and I've got a stethoscope. So obviously I'm a do-gooder. That's what do-gooders look like. But it was in Gaza that it first became clear to me that do-gooders sometimes do more harm than good. And that was a pretty shattering experience. One of the things I learned, I mean, in, in medical school, you don't get taught about measles or in medical, uh, medical school in my day because we, all the teaching was in hospital. And you certainly didn't want children with measles coming into hospital. So you didn't see them. It's a horrible disease. It really is horrible. And... What can happen is that if a child survives measles, and some of them die, they can be left really quite um, disadvantaged. In this little girl who's two years old, you can see at the top of the slide, perhaps, the way that her weight tumbled and never really recovered uh, to, uh, within the normal range. So it, 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 it is a horrible disease which has sometimes um, chronic um, 
problems. Should I have done what I'd been taught to do at medical school, which was don't give antibiotics to people with illnesses caused by viruses, such as measles? Some children developing measles in Khan Yunis in 1969 and 1970, we were there for two years, I should have said, suffered and probably died unnecessarily because I withheld prophylactic antibiotics. By the time I, and this is the really frustrating thing, by the time I went to Gaza in 1969, evidence from six controlled trials had shown that antibiotics given to children with measles can reduce children's risk of developing pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia. So the evidence was there, but it wasn't available to me or my patients. It's continued to be, unfortunately, inadequately studied, in spite of the fact that in 1993, the World Health Organization said that this was the most important question to nail. I wrote um, five years later in an article, sorry, not five years later, um, uh, nine years later, saying why we needed to know the answer to this question. It wasn't until 2006 when a trial was done in Guinea-Bissau which confirmed what those trials, all of which had been done before 1967, had pointed out. That by giving prophylactic antibiotics, you reduced pneumonia and conjunctivitis and uh, higher weight gains resulted. Now, this is a um, Cochrane systematic review, hopefully people have more ready access to what we, my patients and I, needed in 1969. Should I have followed expert medical advice and persuaded my wife, Jan, that our infant son should be put to sleep on their tummies? Well, here was the book that I had bought in 1965 by Dr. Spock. It had already sold 19 million copies at the time I got mine. And I had marked the passage which said, Dr. Spock said, I think it's preferable to accustom a baby to sleeping on his stomach from the start if he's willing. Once people looked at the data about this, they came to the con correct conclusion that had people looked at the evidence, it might have prevented 10,000 cot deaths in this country alone a massive holocaust resulting from a failure to take notice of, of, of evidence. There was no evidence, by the way, that putting babies to sleep on their front, uh, no empirical evidence that it was a good idea. It was just a theory that that must be right because if a baby pukes, uh, its puke would drain out. That was the, the theory. I'm actually not the only health professional who's been misled by expert medical advice. Um, in this study which compared what was being said in textbooks with what could have been known had careful reviews been done, um, they came to the conclusion that advice on some life-saving therapies had been delayed for more than a decade while other treatments had been recommended long after controlled research has shown them to be harmful. These are stories which uh, Rory Corrins knows well because of his uh, interest and involvement in helping people to survive heart attacks. So this is a um, bit of a, probably the most complicated slide that I'm going to put up. And it seems that I was looking to see whether I could use the, um, the arrow on the, on the mouse to show you. 
Let's, so let me explain it just by uh, pointing. On the left-hand side, you have a panel which shows the cumulative estimates of the effects of a clot-busting drug in securing early survival after heart attack. And what you see is that it started off with a very small trial done in 1959. Only 23 patients were involved. Had there been no evidence of any benefit at all, you would have found the, these um, dots um, sort of hovering around that vertical line, the one that separates favors treatments, favors control. But as you got more and more data, by the mid-1970s, really, it was becoming pretty clear that there was a, a, an important treatment here, a life-saving treatment, life-prolonging treatment. And yet they went on um, uh, doing further trials. But the most important thing is that if you look at the right-hand panel, these, this evidence was not being reflected in the textbooks at all. Here was a study published in 1982 which made it pretty clear that this was going to be an important um, way of helping people who are having heart attacks. Yet the Oxford Textbook of Medicine published um, five years later, the second edition, claimed that the clinical benefits of thrombolysis remained to be established. Around about that time, I had to give evidence to a House of Lords Committee on Medical Research and I said that this was really lethal advice. And I found myself on the front page of the Sunday uh, Times as a consequence. And indeed, there were some angry people in Oxford, particularly Oxford University Press, who told me that um, my remarks had disturbed the market, which I thought was an interesting response, actually. <laughs> so what we have the lessons that I learned in Gaza is that good intentions are not enough. Professional humility and admission of uncertainty are preconditions for protecting patients and the public. And that I could have served my patients better if I'd had access to reliable, relevant research evidence about the effects of treatments. So what about um, how that experience, which I, uh, I mentioned because it was so crucial in what now follows, how did that influence my work after I came back? Well, what is reliable evidence about the effects of healthcare? Well, sometimes treatments have such dramatic effects that you don't need carefully controlled research. You didn't need carefully controlled research to find that thalidomide caused phocomelia, the loss of limbs. You don't need um, carefully controlled research to show that um, if you stop heavy bleeding, you may prevent someone from dying. But in the circumstances where the effects of treatment are more modest, effects good or bad, there you need to be very careful that you do everything you can to reduce the biases that may mislead you and also to make sure that you're not misled by the play of chance because that can happen too. Someone who was very influential in helping me to realize this was a man called Archie Cochran. He died in 1988. And he wrote this book in 1972. Um, he was a lecture based on a lecture given in 1971. It's quite a short book. It was very, very influential, not just on me, but on 
lots of people. It was reviewed in um, lay newspapers, including Le Monde, as well as uh, British, uh, English language newspapers. And it had a very simple message, basically. If we're going to have a rational health service, we need to identify the things that do more good than harm. And that means doing carefully controlled research. Later on, uh, he said, it's a great criticism of the medical profession that we haven't organized a critical subtlety, uh, summary by specialty or subspecialty adapted periodically of all relevant randomized controlled trials. And in the same article, he um, identified the specialty within medicine that deserved the gold medal for having done the best job. And that was, they were the tuberculosis specialists who'd almost done themselves out of a job. They'd uh, done such a good job of finding out how to manage the disease in those days. But he gave the wooden spoon to my specialty, obstetrics. So we set about trying to get rid of this wooden spoon. Um, we began by systematically identifying reports of controlled trials of interventions used during pregnancy, childbirth, and early infancy. That's the perinatal um, period, so hence perinatal epidemiology unit. 1976, uh, plans were outlined for systematic reviews of those controlled trials. And then, and this was really important, in 1978, the Department of Health funded the National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit and as among the various things that they were funded to do was to coordinate the preparation of systematic reviews of controlled trials of perinatal care. What are systematic reviews? Well, they begin, basically they are research studies. They begin by defining the question that is to be addressed. You've then got to look for the potentially relevant evidence to answering that question, whether it be unpublished or published. You've got to try and get a full deck. You use then um, uh, ways of assessing that evidence um, that reduce biases and the effects of chance. And I don't want you to uh, even think that I'm asking you to read these. They are um, basically pages out of the textbooks that we produce which showed the materials and methods used in those textbooks. It was quite rare, I think it probably still is, quite rare to have textbooks that tell you at the beginning how they went about um, uh, finding the evidence and presenting the evidence in the later chapters. And they came out in two monstrous uh, books called Effective Care and Pregnancy and Childbirth. A little paperback which summarized that came out at the same time, and that was for... Um, particularly we had in mind that women should have access to this, this information. And a follow-up uh, um, uh, tome on the care of the newborn infant. But systematic reviews also need updating and correcting as additional evidence and errors are identified. And for that, we started publishing electronically in the Oxford Database of Perinatal Trials. Started off with, I think, 14 floppy disks. Um, went down to a little bit fewer numbers of, of three-and-a-half-inch disks, then onto a, um, a CD, CD-ROM, uh, and then eventually it was uh, on the Internet as well. So this, this was happening between 1988 and 1993. And Archie looked on it, and he said, it is good. So, um, now... I come back here now to Wolfson. I mentioned that we had 
two external reviews here at Wolfson. And one of the advisors on the second of those reviews in 1989 was Catherine Peckham. She's a um, pediatric epidemiologist from, from the Institute for Child Health in, in London. And she's married to Sir Michael Peckham. And Sir Michael Peckham was quite soon after that appointed to be the director of the NHS R&D program. And in an article he published in 1991 in the uh, Lancet, he set out what he was going to try and do from his directorship. And he referred to this stuff that we had done during the 1980s in the perinatal field. So in 1992, I left the perinatal field because Michael Peckham gave us the opportunity to see whether these methods could be applied more widely uh, to other fields. People had been doing studies, in fact, in, both in um, uh, heart disease and uh, cancer in particular. They'd been doing them for um, uh, a decade or so. But the idea, this crazy idea, that why don't we try and actually cover all of healthcare was actually bought by um, Michael Peckham. And the following year, in the Cochrane Center, which um, was established still there in a disused um, former bakery in uh, Summertown, Oliver and Gurdon's Bakery in Middleway, um, about 90 people um, sat around a room uh, and invented the Cochrane Collaboration. What's the Cochrane Collaboration? Well, it's an international, because this job could never be done by people from within a, a particular nation. It's independent. It's not-for-profit. It now involves about 30,000 people working uh, around the, the world from more than 100 countries, dedicated to trying to deal with the problem that I faced in Gaza, or similar problems to the one that I faced in Gaza a long time ago. I want to put this slide in because it's very important to realize and to acknowledge, for me to acknowledge, that research evidence isn't the only thing that makes for better decisions in healthcare. You've got to take into account people's preferences, uh, their priorities, in other words, their needs, what resources there are available, and so on, uh, to help better decisions to happen. But systematic reviews of research are essential, even if they're not sufficient. So the lessons learned from that are that systematic reviews of research should inform policies, practices, and choices in healthcare, along with other relevant information, inform prioritization and the design of additional research, and show what contribution to knowledge has been made by the results of that additional research. So during this process of doing systematic reviews, one comes right up front to the quality of the evidence that's available. And if you're trying to actually assess which studies to, to trust, that is obviously very important. So what I'm going to tackle in this next part of the talk is to say what I've learned from researching research, I and others. Well, here it is. The research community is not reviewing existing knowledge systematically before beginning new research. It's not addressing many questions that are important to patients, carers, and practitioners. 
It's not publishing the results of disappointing but important research and is not showing what differences the results of new research make to the totality of what is known. So you can see I'm, a, I'm a completely committed to the importance of research, but I'm actually very critical of the way that the research community has allowed these things to happen. It's rather better than it is in some other fields, some other professional fields. I would say education is an example, um, probably um, uh, criminology too, but it's still not good enough and patients are being let down. They're let down to the extent that they've suffered and died unnecessarily and resources for healthcare and health research have been wasted. And that's not acceptable because basically we all pay for this research. We may pay for it through buying drugs uh, or through um, government grants or through paying more taxes than we would otherwise do if charities weren't tax exempt. We all pay for it. So we should be expecting good dividends from our investment. So let's take these four things one at a time. I'll just give you an indicative example of the kind of thing that lead me to come to this rather um, Jeremiah-like um, uh, judgment. Back to infant sleeping position. There's what we could have known if we had actually been accumulating evidence systematically. We could have known from the early 70s that this was a dangerous business, a fourfold uh, increased chance of cot death as compared to um, sleeping on the back or on the side. What about this one? This is, these are trials of a, of a drug uh, given to um, help stop bleeding. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Because basically the um, evidence, if, if it had no useful effect on the use of perioperative blood transfusion, um, all of those dots would be around the um, vertical line uh, which is to the, to the right of them. And as you'll see, really after about 10 trials, there was pretty good evidence that it had this effect. Yet 64 trials were done. Why were so many trials done? And why didn't they refer to the earlier trials? This is the cumulative total of those trials, and it shows the, the average numbers of previous trials that were cited in all of the new studies. What were the research ethics committees doing to protect the interests of people participating in those later trials? Why were people funding them? Was it because they wanted people to start using this drug? There are actually much cheaper alternatives that have um, just as good an effect. So what we find is, and this is a, a recent study done by two very um, uh, trustworthy people, um, shows that basically people are not looking at what's known already before they embark on new research. And as they point out, this has potential um, implications which are for ethically unjustifiable trials, wasted resources, incorrect conclusions, and unnecessary risks for trial participants. Why is it that this sloppiness is allowed? What about not addressing many questions that are important to patients? I'll just give you two examples there. There are mismatches. Almost whenever you look, there are mismatches. Um, 
The blue lines are trials done um, in, in the real world, as it were. The red lines are the preferences of patients as identified through um, focus groups and surveys. And what you'll see if you look at the drugs uh, line is that patients and uh, uh, really don't want any more trials on drugs for osteoarthritis of the knee. There are yet another NSAID isn't going to um, be uh, obviously a good bet uh, for spending resources. They want things, they want research on knee replacement, um, education and advice, and other sorts of things. And yet what the research community is doing is what they don't want. Sometimes practices get into um, uh, become adopted without good evidence. What are the effects of giving antibiotics to women in preterm labor who've got intact membranes? Well, here's a Cochrane review which raised concerns about increased neonatal mortality for those that received antibiotics. But even more worrying, when a very large trial was done, a statistically robust trial, and they followed up the children who had been treated, as it were, as fetuses for seven years, they found that those that had been exposed to antibiotics were more likely to end up with cerebral palsy. There were two antibiotic groups. They both showed the same tendency. So what we've got is a situation where a particular treatment has been used for uh, 30 years or so, and had that question been addressed 30 years ago, some people now living with cerebral palsy might not necessarily, might have avoided it. So we need to confront important uncertainties about the effects of treatments because if we don't do that, patients will be denied unrecognized beneficial care. And there's certainly, I, I showed you the clot-busting example of that. Patients will be given unrecognized harmful care, like being told to put their babies to sleep on their tummy. And resources will be wasted on useless or unnecessarily expensive care. And the James Lind Initiative, which I work in now, which was mentioned by the president, is to encourage people, clinicians, patients, carers, everyone, to acknowledge uncertainties and then to work out which of these uncertainties deserves priority in being attended to in further research. And the James Lind Alliance has been working in establishing and um, convening priority-setting partnerships of patients, carers, and clinicians all together to find out what their shared priorities are. In other words, th this is not patients' priorities or doctors' priorities or physiotherapists' priorities. These are, um, having gone through a formal process, they share these priorities which, we're told by the funding agencies, gives them a better chance of, of having a, um, a fair passage when it comes to competing for funds. What about not publishing the results of disappointing but important research? Well, a few years ago, it was decided that one way to address this problem was to require people to register controlled trials at their inception, before the, the results were known. 
And I don't think that's done much to actually reduce the problem. What it has allowed is for the problem to be quantified. And we find from the studies that are now possible that about one in two clinical trials don't get published. Now, what would people who were invited to participate in these studies and volunteered, what would they think, having believed that they were contributing to a growth in knowledge about this situation? Furthermore, the studies that do get published are not a representative sample of the studies that were done. The ones that have, as it were, more positive results are more likely to be published. So you've not only got under-publication, you've got biased under-publication. Um, this is a, um, quite a rare example because these researchers actually... 13 years after they had done a trial, wrote up the trial, which hadn't been written up previously, to make a point. They were studying a, a drug which it was thought would, would be helpful in reducing early death after heart attack by reducing the rhythm abnormalities that sometimes are provoked by a heart attack. Um, and in fact, they found that um, nine patients died on the drugs and one only died on the placebo. And because the development of the drug was abandoned for commercial reasons, it was never published. And they then point out it's a good example of publication bias. The results described here might have provided an early warning of trouble ahead. And in fact, I keep on going back to Rory, but he's actually contributed quite a lot to this field. He'd done a study which showed the danger of these, um, uh, these drugs with Steve McMahon and... Um, uh, Richard Pito, I think, showing that these were pretty dodgy drugs to be giving. But they were given in very large numbers. And in Thomas Moore's uh, book, he estimates that at the peak of their use in the late 1980s, um, these drugs were killing every year as many Americans were killed during the whole of the Vietnam War. So publication bias can kill. This is Alessandro Liberati, who died on the 1st of January this year. He was a great friend. Several people in this room know him. Now, the reason he's there is because he has a particularly poignant complaint against the people who don't publish research. What he says is he has multiple myeloma, died from multiple myeloma. Research results should be easily accessible to people who need to make decisions about their own health. Why was I forced to make my decision knowing that information was somewhere but not available? Was the delay because the results were less exciting than expected or because in the evolving field of myeloma research there are now new exciting hypotheses or drugs to look at? How far can we tolerate the butterfly behavior of researchers moving on to the next flower well before the previous one has been fully exploited. This is the human cost. He died still waiting for those results. Underreporting of research is unethical, unscientific, and harmful. No question about it. And I think it should be outlawed. Lastly, not showing what difference the results of new research make to the totality of what is known. 
This slide, if you look at the bottom line, looks at the extent to which the results of a new study are set in the context of an updated review of what is known from all of the similar studies. And as you'll see, no systematic attempt was made in the majority of these studies published in uh, Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, BMJ, um, Annals of Internal Medicine, five really top uh, general medical journals. So what is a reader meant to make of these little islands of information that are detached from the continents with which they're associated. Here's an illustration that I think shows how researchers and the research community more generally can provide a more effective public service. For several decades, there's been discussion about whether people who have traumatic brain injury following let's say a traffic accident, traffic crash I should say because they're not usually accidents, um, whether they should receive steroids. So depending on which hospital you went to or which consultant was responsible for your care, you might either get the drug or not get the drug. So a systematic review was done of the existing evidence. It was published in the BMJ and also uh, in the Cochrane database and it revealed important uncertainty about whether these drugs did more good than harm. And they made that plain, that there really did need to be additional evidence. This was the evidence that they presented. As you'll see, the no difference line has these individual trials scattered around it, such that at the bottom, at the end of the day, if you like, um, this treatment is um, com these data are compatible with both a reduction and an increase in death after traumatic brain injury given or not given um, steroids. And the, the difference is actually quite modest. It's about, um, uh, you know, it might be a 10% or 15% uh, difference in either direction. But if you think about it, 10 or 15% of all people having traumatic brain injury is an extremely large number. So knowing which way it actually goes is very important. So what did they do? Um, because of this uncertainty, they um, got the MRC to recognize that this was an important question about which there was uncertainty. They registered the trial prospectively and they published the protocol of the trial so that people knew and would know in future what they had set out to do. They eventually published the results of their study, which involved 10,000 patients. And in the section of the report where they summarized the results, they showed what contribution the results had made to the totality of the evidence. So the diamond there shows that largely a result of this big trial, but other trials contributed a bit to it. Um, this practice was actually killing patients had been therefore when it had been given for 30 years or so. So it's exemplary um, because it refers to current uncertainty about the effects of treatment. 
It notes that the trial was registered and the protocol published. It sets the new results in the context of an updated systematic review. And by doing that, gives people all of the evidence they need for action to stop giving this treatment routinely or without very good reasons. And very few papers give people a bottom line which takes into account systematically what's known from other studies. In fact, one of the first studies to do it uh, was a study from Oxford called ISIS-1, and it actually used this approach way back in the 80s, but it still is not common. So, from researching research, the lessons that I've drawn are that new research should add to existing evidence as documented in systematic reviews of what's already known, the research community should pay more attention to the unanswered questions that are important to people who use healthcare. Researchers must publish the results of all research to which patients have contributed. And reports presenting new evidence should make clear what it has contribute, contributed to the totality of the evidence. Now here I come to a rather different element of this talk before coming back to reiterate some of the points that I've been making just recently, which is, do health professionals have special responsibilities to respond to threats to health socially and politically as well as technically? And I tell you now that I don't know the answer to that question. The German pathologist, uh, Rudolf Virchow, was actually fairly clear about this. He said that medicine has the obligation to point out problems and to attempt their theoretical solution. The politician must find the means for their actual solution. But he said medicine is a social science and politics is nothing else but medicine on a large scale. Okay, well here was a very, very important report published by the WHO. It was a committee chaired by Michael Marmot, a um, distinguished epidemiologist at University College uh, London, and it talked about the um, social impact, the social impacts on health. And this editorial, which welcomed it, said that it had the honesty and courage to say that social injustice is killing people on a grand scale. So that's one kind of, of issue that might be regarded as asking the question, do, do doctors and other health professionals have special responsibilities when it comes to this? What kind of problems might health professionals have special responsibilities to respond socially and politically as well as technically to threats to health? Well, torture. It ought to be fairly obvious that this is something which doctors ought to be concerned about. And indeed, in this very hall, Raymond Hoppenberg, I was here, he was... Um, founding an organization or helping to found an organization called Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture. And he was asking people to contribute resources so that it could get started. And that was to provide direct clinical services to survivors of torture. So that's a technical response. But more recently, I've been involved in what's more of a social and political response with an organization called uh, MEDACT, and this has five case studies in it, um, USA, UK, Italy, Israel, and Sri Lanka. 
looking at medical complicity in torture and basically concluding that the World Medical Association and indeed National Medical Association are not taking this issue seriously enough. For example, there's to torture going on uh, of Palestinians by Palestinians. This happens to be an investigation into the Palestinian authorities' torture practices, but you can bet your bottom dollar that Hamas are into the same game themselves. And the issue is, um, are doctors complicit in this? I've been unable to find out. What about malnutrition? Well, here's a, a little um, baby um, being um, fed almost certainly a filthy, over-dilute um, mixture of, of um, uh, dried milk and water in a hydraulic brake fluid bottle. This was in, taken in Gaza. So the technical response was to bring that child into the rehydration and nutrition center that we ran. But a social and political response would be to outlaw inappropriate promotion of breast milk substitutes. This terribly inappropriately named safety milk is an example of that. What about military occupation? Well, a technical response is to get involved in doing the series of articles for The Lancet that I was involved in with, with others uh, as a member of a steering group, covering a variety of different things and revealing, for example, the increased stunting in um, children under five in Gaza. I don't know if any of you saw uh, the um, Save the Children uh, interview on Channel 4 News yesterday about the um, effects of stunting, not just on growth, but actually on cognitive ability later on. It's, it's a terrible situation that is um, revealed by these figures. But some say it's a, that's a technical response to refer to these. The social and political response was on the front cover of The Lancet, and they got a lot of stick for actually writing it as bluntly as they did. The structural and political conditions that they endure in the occupied Palestinian territory are the determinants of population health. What about war? Well, the American Public Health Association actually has a policy statement on what public health doctors and other specialists, public health specialists, how they should react to this situation. So let's take the military use of phosphorus as was used in Operation Cast Lead in Gaza. The technical response is to describe how you treat phosphorus burns. And this was the first author of this, is a, a medical student uh, published in The Lancet. And here he is. He actually he wasn't able to go and accept the prize, but he got second prize from a, a conference at Imperial College on trauma for doing this. And he and others have written up a Cochrane Review on what evidence there is about the treatment of, of phosphorus burns. And it's quite difficult um, uh, evidence to review because a lot of it's in Russian and Chinese. It'll be published, by the way, about this time next month, about, about a month from now. That's the protocol. But some of the social political responses to these circumstances are manifested by, for example, Dr. Ruhama Maton, who founded and is the president of 
um, Physicians for Human Rights Israel, a fantastic organization. Uh, if any of you are wondering where you might actually um, just give encouragement, but obviously also provide some funds if you can, this is a good place to think in terms of, of um, acting. I was asked by The Lancet to write um, an article about Gaza. What should I write? Inevitably, it was going to have to be political. I, I acknowledge the sort of um, associations I had with that part of the world, but I ended off by saying that for many, Israel will continue to be judged by its attitudes and actions towards the non-Jews whose lives it controls. And I believe that very much now. Here are um, other doctors, um, two uh, Norwegian doctors who worked through most of the attack on Gaza, Mats Gilbert and Eric Fosser, in this very moving book called Eyes in Gaza. The little girl is called Jumana. And another remarkable man, Isildin Abu Al-Esh, who will be in Oxford at the beginning of May, talking about his experience. His three daughters, who you see pictured on a beach in Gaza there, were in their bedroom when an Israeli tank shell um, killed them all and uh, one of their cousins. Uh, Isildin is someone uh, Jan and I have uh, known over 20 years, although we haven't seen him that frequently over that time. Um, he has written this book, I Shall Not Hate, and it may surprise some of you that uh, Eli Wiesel is one of the people who's quoted on the front of it. And if you want to hear him explain why he has this, I think, quite extraordinary um, reaction, then um, at Brooks, 6 o'clock uh, on Friday the 4th of May, uh, John Snow will be introducing him. So, confronted with social and political causes of ill health, I happen to think that health professionals probably do have special social and political responsibilities, but I'm not sure. And others definitely disagree with me. So this is the question I, I throw out to you, not because, unfortunately, we have a long time for, to discuss it, but because I think it's an important question and I don't know the answer. So returning to this challenge of trying to do more good than harm within healthcare, within healthcare, here's a summary. Professional and good intentions are not enough, and decisions in healthcare should be informed by systematic reviews of research evidence. So demand these. Everyone should demand these. For the research community, take full account of what's already known, pay greater attention to questions that are important to users of healthcare, publish the results of all research to which patients have contributed, and set the results of new research in the context of other relevant research, that is, in updated systematic reviews. It's very important, given what the research community is not doing, that the public becomes more aware of these things, and that's why I chose to speak about this topic when um, I had the honor of the invitation to give this talk. Everyone has a role to play in bringing about the changes that are needed. We've, um, four of us have written a book um, this is a paperback, and you can get it on, um, uh, what do you call them, e-books. But you can also download the whole of the text free from that website down there. The first edition of the book was a success. It's in seven languages. The second edition is currently being translated into a number of languages. This was launched in 
19, uh, in October last year. I think it's a good book, and it's a book, by the way, I hate the cover, but I think the content is, is very good. And that's because we sent it to nearly 100 people, the text, so that um, they could um, tell us that we were unclear or we were using sentences which were too long or words which were too long. So I think with the help of nearly 100 people, we've got it into reasonably readable shape. Here are the, in, in, in the action plan, there were a number of things we suggest that people could do. Uh, we wanted to urge them to promote research addressing inadequately answered questions. But we said, but only if it meets scientific and ethical principles. That is, um, don't agree to participate in the clinical uh, trial unless the study protocol has been registered and made publicly available. The protocol refers to the systematic reviews of existing evidence showing that the trial is justified, and that you receive written assurance that the full study results will be published. So coming back to the crest of this college, the bit I didn't read out was the yellow torch for the pursuit of knowledge. And I want to end with someone who will be one year old on Sunday. This is our granddaughter, and she's reaching for a book which um, is written by Ben Goldacre, and on the cover of the book, it says, I always have to, it says, Bad Science. Um, oh dear, I ought to have brought it with me. Uh, bad Science introduces the reader. Um, can anyone help me? Scientific principles to help everyone to become a, a more effective bullsh a bullshit detector. Sir Ian Chalmers, her grandfather. <laughs> so, thank you very much for listening patiently for an hour, um, just within the hour. Thank you very much.